Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very happy to say that we have Sarah Ross on the show, and we'll be discussing her new book, The Birth of Feminism, Woman as Intellect in Renaissance Italy and... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very happy to say that we have Sarah Ross on the show, and we'll be discussing her new book, The Birth of Feminism, Woman as Intellect in Renaissance Italy and England. I have a PhD in early modern Russian history from a big university you've probably heard of. And I will confess to you that before I read Sarah's excellent book, I could not name a single female intellectual of the Renaissance. This is obviously somewhat embarrassing, not only for me, but I think for our entire discipline. As Sarah points out, the female intellectuals were there. They were acknowledged in their own time. And they said some rather surprising things in the sense that they sound quite modern insofar as they talked about not only the dignity of women, but also the possibility that they might have the same sort of virtue as men. These were, in Sarah's carefully selected words, kind of proto-feminists. And she has interesting arguments about how they came to write the things that they did. And these arguments are bound up in family history and the history of humanism and the history of the reception of classical texts and their understanding. So all in all, it makes a fascinating read for those of you who are interested in really a lost cohort of intellectuals, at least as far as I was concerned, and we should thank Sarah for recovering them. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? I am doing just fine. I'm glad yourself? to hear that. No, I'm, I'm doing well. We had a blizzard here uh, yesterday, <laughs> uh, and I really like the snow, uh, so it was good for me, but I think other Iowans are not as happy about it. And I can walk to work, and they have to drive, so, you know. Oh, yes. We're yeah. getting some of that loveliness here, too. Are you really? That's good. You're in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Is that correct? That's right. And is everything uh, hunky-dory there? I would characterize it as hunky-dory, pretty hunky-dory. much. That's Most good. of the snow melted. So. I'm really glad to do that. Yes, right. it's absolutely beautiful today here. It's really great. I would encourage anybody to come visit Iowa. So I should tell our, <laughs> um, I should tell our listeners that we have Sarah Ross on the show today, and we'll be discussing her book, The Birth of Feminism, Woman as Intellect in Renaissance Italy and England. And it's just come out from Harvard University Press. I have a very fresh copy here if I... Um, actually, put it up to my nose. I can smell the ink. Smell the ink. You know, <laughs> Me so too. That, that, yeah, that's great. So you must be very happy to have received it. Um, it's beautifully produced, obviously. Uh, Sarah, let me ask you to say, uh, by way of introduction, a few words about yourself. Sure. 
Well, let's see. I would say that, you know, my intellectual point of origin uh, is really Kansas City and two parents who were trained as librarians. I think I was probably destined to have something to do with books in my life. Uh, but I'm also a recovering classicist. My early background was in Latin and Greek, hence uh, the obsession with that in this book. But as a you know, PhD candidate, I turned to history and did my PhD at Northwestern. Uh, with Ed Muir, Ethan Shagan, Bill Monter, and Robert Lerner, uh, a great team coming at this project from lots of different uh, perspectives. And then most recently, I got two years of glorious lucubration in teaching at Princeton University in their Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts. And at present, I'm happy to say I'm gainfully employed as an assistant professor at Boston College in the History Department. So life is good. Well, yeah, that's that is, that's, a, that's a very good and, if I might say, a, unusual story for historians. Um, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unusual. The, uh, but good. Congratulations on all that. Thanks. Uh, um, yeah. The, the, uh, so you mentioned Kansas City there. Are you from Kansas or from Missouri? Well, this is a point of extreme dispute. I'm from the Missouri side, and we're really fanatical about that divide. Mm. <laughs> I'm the Missouri side of Kansas City, yeah. just to confuse everyone. Yeah, I'm from Kansas, so uh, I'm on ah. the other side of that fanatical divide. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I always, people who um, from Kansas who say they're from Kansas City are never from Kansas City but always from Shawnee Mission. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. I didn't thought about that. That was, a, that was a little insider joke there for people from Kansas City. I know. I'm sure nobody but will get it but us, but always from Johnny Mission. So in any event, uh, let me ask you this. What is the origin of this book? It was your dissertation, but how did you come to focus on female intellectuals in the Renaissance? Well, there are lots of strands to that. Um, when I was an undergraduate, of course, reading a lot of classics, of course, there are women described everywhere. So one question that came out of, of that background was, when do women start interacting themselves with the classical canon, uh, Latin and Greek literature? And I, I had the hypothesis that probably the Renaissance era would have been that moment. Um, so that's part of the intellectual genesis of the book. But the other was a curiosity about uh, learned women and their relationships to their fathers. I mean, as I um, signal quite clearly in the, the acknowledgments and, and also in the dedication, my father, librarian, author, actor, was absolutely pivotal um, in my development academically and, and has really been the one who's encouraged me always to articulate ideas and, and to push in a scholarly way. So this was also, in a sense, an exercise in autobiography. My hypothesis is that the father-daughter relationship might have had something to do with uh, even early modern women's intellectual development, and certainly in an era that was structured patriarchally, um, it seemed like the father might have been a key figure for some of these early figures. So there's kind of a an academic and uh, a personal component to the theory. So that's, that's what I started exploring even in the very early uh, years of graduate school, mostly focusing on the father-daughter relationship. Um, I found a couple of paradigmatic cases that I started working with. One is the really fascinating work, um, relationship uh, between Galileo and his daughter, who was a nun at uh, a convent near his estate, and Thomas More and his daughter, Margaret Roper, by far the more famous pair, but, uh, but with the, the excellent work on the letters between Galileo and his daughter, mm -hmm. um, and also the, the long-standing tradition of work on Margaret Roper and her father. I started with that kind of comparison. So then the question was, 
were there any others? Uh, here are a couple of interesting relationships. In the one case, Margaret Roper really did become an acknowledged intellectual. In the case of uh, Galileo's daughter, uh, Sister Virginia, not so much. Um, so that's, it spiraled from there, and then it became a process of, of finding more people and digging into the archives more, getting away from just the print trail. But I really did want to keep this initial comparison of Italy and England because as I started to read more in the literature, it struck me that in terms of cultural analysis, be it historical, comparative literature, Italy always seems to take uh, a leading position. So part of this project was to see, well, what was going on in that other Renaissance uh, beyond some of the, the classic figures like Elizabeth I or, or even Margaret Roper herself. So it sort of spiraled into the, the monstrous poem that it is. <laughs> I wouldn't call it monstrous. That's I, th I mean monstrous in the early modern sense of being. It's big. There are a lot of words. Huge and and slightly scary. Yeah, yeah. A lot of words. I can confess to you something yes. and to my um, listeners that I have a PhD in early modern European history from a big university you've heard of, mm -hmm. and before I read your book. I could not name one, not one, female intellectual of the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th century. Why is that? Oh, that's such a good question. And you're certainly not alone. I mean, the, the question I often get from, you know, people come from lots of different backgrounds, academics and not, is, oh, you're working on women of the Renaissance? Were there any Renaissance women? I think in part, um, I would attribute this to... Well, first of all, a classic problem in scholarship, I think, that we're all familiar with. I remember one of my mentors said to me at one point that the best thing you can do in a career is change one sentence in a textbook. <laughs> and some of these older interpretive paradigms, especially surrounding women, are really intractable. It's very hard to change that sentence that says something like, uh, there really were also women humanists and women cultural contributors of lots of different kinds, artists, uh, actresses, poets, musicians. So one of the reasons this hasn't got out yet is that it's been uh, a relatively recent line of inquiry. I mean, this really started with Joan Kelly's classic article in the, the late 70s, Did Women Have a Renaissance? And the reprisals and debates and the affirmations and negations that have come after her article have taken this in lots of different directions. There's uh, good work now, a really strong tradition of work in the theoretical, Constance Jordan and others, talking about the debate on women and conceptions of womanhood. And then there's, there's also a good amount of spade work being done. Uh, we have the Other Voice in Early Modern Europe series uh, now, I think, to be published through the University of Toronto Press. But some of these strands don't talk to each other in a particularly effective way, enough to change that sentence. Uh, we know a lot about Renaissance feminism uh, in the theoretical sense. We're starting to get this amazing roster of women themselves as cultural, uh, cultural contributors, but there's still this um, sort of sense of separate conversations. And I think what needs to happen so that uh, more folks are kind of aware of, of the presence of women themselves and the debates about women in the era is just to bring these conversations together, which is one of the things that I hope this book will do. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, article by Dr. Kelly that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, I, I believe that she answers her own question, doesn't she? <laughs> she does. I wasn't going to get into that. But yeah, she, she answers it with a resounding no. 
Um, and as I say, the debates have, have gotten uh, very interesting. Uh, and I think more people uh, who are working in this field now would say that, yes, indeed, women had a renaissance. But what does that mean? Um, what kind of women are we talking about? Let, let me ask this, though. On what basis does she say that uh, women did not have a, a renaissance? Well, she works, interestingly, uh, in a more theoretical vein. She's working with literary sources. Um, one of the texts she relies very heavily on is uh, Castiglione's Courtier as evidence of the kind of marginalization, exclusion of women um, from positions of power, at least re represented positions of power relative to men. And the contrast in her, in her work is with the earlier uh, medieval courtly love tradition, which she sees as at least in a kind of discursive way uh, attributing to women a kind of power over men, at least uh, in an emotional sense that men in the courtly love tradition are paying kind of homage to women in the Castiglione courtier sense, and suddenly it's the men who seem to be in control and the women are kind of pushed out of the discussion. Um, so, I mean, I think she also wants to make a point about women's real social roles, but there I would see a kind of mismatch between her evidence and and the kind of point she wants to make about women in society. Oh, do tell. Well, in the sense that what does Castiglione actually tell us about the, the everyday lives of anyone? Uh, this is a literary text. Mm -hmm. It's an imaginative space. And it may tell us a great deal about conceptions um, and larger cultural categories, but uh, how do we really interweave that with some of the things she suggests, for example, about women increasingly excluded from guilds? Um, I mean, I would want to see a much tighter connection between the social and the literary than I think, you know, certainly in a, in a first article on a topic mm -hmm. uh, she could provide. So mm -hmm. there have been, you know, economic historians who have come in and, and said, wait a minute, we need to look at this more carefully. There, and there certainly have been um, intellectual and cultural and art historians who've, who've said, well, Actually, women were pretty active contributors, so maybe in this text we don't want to uh, we don't want to lean on it too heavily. Mm -hmm. I see. In terms of, I see. Yeah. yeah. So, so to put your thesis into perspective, I think it would be helpful for you to say a few words about um, three things, uh, and I'll just enumerate them very quickly, and then we can go through them. I hope uh, one is uh, the received view in, let's say, the 14th or 15th century about women from the Bible. Uh, the second is the received view of women from uh, classical texts, and especially Aristotle. And then third, let's talk a little bit about the actual role of reasonably elite women and what they uh, were expected to do and did do. So let's start with the Bible. What was the received view of women from uh, these sacred texts? Well, from the sacred texts, you can draw two antithetical conceptions of woman. You have Eve, the origin of sin, as, as was generally the consensus, uh, the origin of, of humankind's fall, uh, really the greater sinner in, in the garden context. You have then, on the other hand, the Virgin Mary, who can be seen, and some did, as a figure of ultimate redemption for humanity because of, of you know, giving birth to Christ, who redeems mankind. So you have, in a sense, already an irreconcilable uh, pair of options uh, for conceiving a woman. 
and it really depended upon the author themselves and and their particular rhetorical purposes, which they would point to. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, there's I think an inherent problem, and the, the reason I would say that the the inheritance from the biblical context is more negative than positive, in the sense that even the the Marian uh, possibility, the Marian paradigm suggests a kind of exceptionality. There was only one Virgin Mary, after all. We're not aware of any other virgin births in the uh, Christian tradition. So this is a very difficult, positive model um, Mm -hmm. for actual flesh and blood women. Mm -hmm. So there's at the very least tension, but I think also a a predominant sense that uh, women like Eve, they are the daughters of Eve, her disobedience to God gets spinned out into a lot of conceptions of women's uh, pride, vanity, uh, even their excessive sexuality, a sense of lack of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is always a problem with the female. Mm-hmm. So so there's that. Now in terms of the the Aristotelian mm-hmm. and really more broadly classical contribution, um, there we have from Aristotle and Galen a conception of the female as certainly useful in the household sense. She brings you children, but there is a way in which she is conceived of as a defective male. Mm-hmm. Um, that nature, if you know, proceeding properly and going full course in the development of a fetus, would always produce a male. Mm-hmm. So that's a lovely idea <laughs> to have mm-hmm. in this already problematic Christian uh, context. Uh, certainly in both traditions, you have uh, the exceptional female achievers. Uh, and a, a pro-feminist writer can always point to them. You can point to the Virgin Mary. You can point to female saints. Uh, in the classical context, you have also a clipboard of uh, women achievers, mm-hmm. and I talk about a number of them. Um, they're fairly legion. You could point to a Hortensia, for example, a female orator, or mm-hmm. you could point uh, to some ancient queens, uh, Sophonisba, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the problem of exceptionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this actually play out on the ground? Mm-hmm. Are these just stories? In what ways can real women imitate them? To what extent should they? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Judith, for example, from the Bible, slaying Holofernes. Well, this is a triumphant moment, but I think also in a social sense, a very scary moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have um, the possibility of, of subversion of hierarchy. And, and violence and blood. <laughs> so, no, I see. Know. So it was yeah. a predominantly um, what we would think of as a uh, negative view. Yes, yes, I would say so, predominantly. Yes. I see. So let's talk a little bit about the actual lives of women, what they did and what they were expected to do. Um, can yeah. you say a few words about that? Well, what did women – this is one of the, the problems. What do we mean when we're talking about women? Uh, it's It's – in the scholarship, and I think in the contemporary conception, this kind of huge category, uh, and we don't sort of speak of men and what men were doing. Uh, we need to think of them by profession and by social scale. So women were certainly encouraged to participate in the domestic economy in a positive way. Uh, Women were, regardless of class, if we can say anything in, in kind of general terms, expected to produce children. 
um, expected to run the household, keep things. There's a certain amount of, uh, and this is the sort of positive side also of the, the Aristotelian tradition. Women are understood to be, if they're functioning properly, uh, good conservers of what the, the male provider brings in. So they're expected to keep careful um, control of the household, uh, early care of the children, and uh, certainly serve as companions at some level uh, for their husbands. Uh, and this is this is what they are trained to do or understood to be trained to do as, as young girls, presumably by their mothers. Um, that's the kind of dominant paradigm, that mm -hmm. the best example of womanhood is a, a positive contributor in her way to, to the domestic economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they, they were under the – I know this because I have read a certain amount of um, – it's called the uh, – I think it's called the Hausvater Literatur or something like that, uh, the Hausvater yes. Buchern. And uh, th these uh, uh, always, as far as I know, say that the uh, woman is under the domestic control of the uh, Hausvater. And uh, just like – and has a position which is similar to that of children. Yes. I think I think that's essentially true. Here also we confront a kind of gap between prescriptions and realities. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly you're absolutely right. I mean whether it's the Hausvater literature or the, the sort of domestic treatises even of the Renaissance, there is the sense that – when we're prescribing, we're saying that women should indeed be the kind of learners always um, mm -hmm. in a position that is that is subordinate to the, the father and husband. Mm -hmm. um, I think every time we go to the more archival evidence, for example, I'm thinking of the, the letters of Alessandra Strozzi, very famous um, collection of letters from a 15th century merchant wife, we get a very different picture mm -hmm. of how things played out on the ground, that this uh, subservience and sort of uh, always and ever daughterliness uh, it wasn't the way it played out, mm -hmm. that women were in fact really in charge of the households for mm -hmm. lots of different reasons, men away at war, mm -hmm. men away on business, the, the discrepancies in age at first marriage, which mean that women tend to be very young, men mm -hmm. are considerably older, die sooner, and so forth. So um, there are tensions all over the place, mm -hmm. but you're absolutely right. Certainly the prescriptive level uh, of uh, argument is that Yes, women should be subordinate and, and dutiful and um, obedient. It's funny you mention that because I had a discussion with some of my students recently about the impression that you would get of uh, American religiosity, particularly here in Iowa where people are, are religious, <laughs> if you just read the prescriptive literature. You would think mm -hmm. that they tithed and went to church four times a week and, uh, you know, uh, various other things. But, uh, in exactly. fact, they don't do any of those things. <laughs> um, exactly. But, this is but, the problem. And, and that, yeah, they, they realized immediately that, yeah, reading, reading the rules was not really um, a good representation of what actually goes on. So <laughs> exactly. yeah, I, I see just exactly what, what you're saying, um, especially that because it's about tithing. That, that really is a – that's a pretty strong thing in certain Christian traditions and – not a lot of Americans do it. Uh, but in any event, uh, I don't want to cast, cast aspersions no, on uh, anybody's uh, religiosity. But it does show the difference between the prescriptive literature and actually what happens. But mm -hmm. let's, let's move uh, our discussion toward affairs of the mind. I know uh, from some research I was doing recently in the uh, history of um, printing and um, particularly about uh, – the rise in literacy that um, people of the late Middle Ages mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the early Renaissance were mad about founding schools, lots of grammar schools founded in mm -hmm. England and Italy and other places. 
and they were teaching people to read, especially Latin. Um, I don't recall that um, women were generally invited into those schools. Am I wrong about that? Well, it was rare. Uh, it did happen. I mean, Paul Grendler uh, has, has put together a magisterial tome, uh, Schooling in Renaissance Italy. And uh, the evidence for uh, women's inclusion in the grammar school context is, is very spotty and fragmentary. He's even found a few cases, though, of women teaching in, in the grammar schools. And certainly with the advent of, of the humanist movement full-blown in the 15th century, there are some humanists who set up their schools, uh, Guarino Guarini of Verona is one, who do, in fact, invite certainly uh, elite women, um, the daughters of elite women, to, to participate. As I say, this is more of a rarity in this kind of institutional context, um, but it, it did happen occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and, and they were, just to uh, finish the um, path, they were also uh, not invited to um, study at university, as far as I know. No. Um, that's a really interesting question in its own right. There are traditions, and some of, of the women writers I talk about play on them, of, of women instructing often in their father's place, if father was a professor at an Italian university, uh, that the daughter might creep in and do some lectures for him mm -hmm. under, under veil or under some kind of device. That uh, it's very hard to substantiate, and this is one of the ideas for future uh, projects. Uh, I'd like to see if one can dig up perhaps more about that that's, that's substantive, let's say the University of Bologna. Mm -hmm. um, the, as far as we know, the first uh, woman to receive a degree from a university, that was in 1678, I think, um, uh, one of the women of the Cornaro family. Uh, and. After that, I think, uh, as the story is told, there's a statute put in place that this won't happen again, <laughs> that this is a loophole that her father mm -hmm. played with mm -hmm. and, and made work for in her case. So, right, there is there is the institutional problem. Mm -hmm. So this gets us right to the thesis of your book. If we've mm -hmm. excluded the grammar schools and we've excluded universities and other forms of institutional higher education, if women were to uh, gain uh, letters and mm -hmm. uh, other such things, they had to do it at home. They would indeed, as uh, as I'm constantly reminded by by my friends who work on um, cultural production in convents. We have to remember the convents too. That okay. that is an option. Where Oops. some some of the convents, the elite convents, would in fact provide women with a pretty extensive education. Yeah, I mean, I know this. I'm going to get in trouble because we have a couple of people here. Um, I know that's Catherine why I thought we better Connie Berman to study exactly <laughs> this. So. Um, probably one of them is going to be knocking on my door probably for the next week to yell at me about that. But uh, in any event, yes, that's right. In the convent, um, there, there was a certain amount of, uh, of, of teaching and learning that went on. There's also printing, actually. Uh, they, they had printing presses, some of these con convents. Uh, so uh, um, uh, I'll take my foot out of my mouth now. And I, will no, no, I, <laughs> and I was I, just about to put mine in yeah, my mouth, too, and, and, and say, and, yes, and yes, you, this yeah, is the only and, option. Yeah, and yeah. You, and, and, uh, so please tell us about exactly uh, how um, they manage – to gain this um, education in the household setting? Well, this was, as, as I argue, um, at any rate, uh, a kind of shift that we see beginning in the 15th century with a number of male humanists. I mean, humanism itself is a new movement of, of the, the early Renaissance. And what I think happens is uh, male humanists decide to, in a way, follow their own logic. Um, 
famous examples like uh, Bartolomeo Scala and say that, well, we're talking about education is the foundation of virtue. And if that's the case, we should educate our daughters as well as our sons. And the other thing about humanists is that they are also frequently family men in a way that the, their clerical predecessors were not. And so they have daughters on occasion. So you have these kind of early paradigmatic cases of learned men who, for reasons, no doubt, of, of personal commitment, but also I think intellectual commitment, want to try this experiment of mm -hmm. educating their daughters. Mm -hmm. And these become kind of uh, celebrity cases. Mm -hmm. and sometimes what happens is learned father will literally uh, tutor his children, including his daughters himself, uh, but there's also uh, the presence of, of tutors and and a fairly wide publicity campaign as well mm -hmm. on the part of learned fathers. So I, I wanted to I wanted to before we go on to talk about the uh, fathers and their daughters, I wanted mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about uh, this word virtue. Um, yes. Now I, I'm trying to remember my Latin well, but if I'm not incorrect, this uh, is derived from the Latin word for man, is it not, or something like this? Vir is a. It is indeed. Yeah, I do, <laughs> my Latin teacher will be happy that I remembered this. So, it might not a um, a more proper um, uh, uh, gloss of this word or uh, translation of this word be manliness? It certainly can be. I mean, and and Renaissance etymologists themselves play with this link between manliness and virtue. But what we also have to keep in mind is that there are already two strands of virtue, much as you began asking me about the kind of inheritance of the Christian and classical uh, tradition. We've got classical notions of virtue, which are very much in the manly vein, fortitude, accomplishment, courage, um, magnanimity. You have, however, also the Christian notion of virtue as, uh, you know, in fundamental ways, humility, charity, love, uh, more passive virtues, one might say. So there's all sorts of room to play with what virtue means mm -hmm. when humanists start fiddling around with what they mean by yeah. virtue. Yeah, the only reason I bring it up is that you, you can see that because of the close etymological tie between these two words that there was automatically a kind of conceptual dissonance involved, that there was automatically some tension there when people were mm -hmm. saying, in a sense, that women once educated were manly. You can see how odd that sounds to us. And, and it, I imagine it sounded odd to them as well. It did. And they, it took some pretty fancy rhetorical footwork yeah, no, to reconceive of, of virtue as, uh, in any sense, appropriately female. It's a little bit um, like the way we use the word. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's a little like the way we use the word uh, still. And I found myself doing it today during the uh, ultimate lecture in my um, – Western Civ three class. About oh, congratulations! Yeah, that's a wonderful you. moment. Yeah, good, yeah. <laughs> about mankind, you know, that's yes. a, it's a difficulty there for us because we should say humankind, but mankind, and somehow that includes women. You can see how there's an automatic tension there, and I corrected myself. I'm happy to say, but uh, it's still there with me. It is. I mean, this is a difficulty, and the. I mean, the other thing with with women and virtue is that traditionally, and this we also have as an inheritance, I think, of the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, that women's virtue can be synonymous with chastity. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's precisely the kind of tensions you're suggesting that that early humanists like Boccaccio uh, will famously play with um, when he writes his. Uh, compendium of, of women's biographies, sort of heroic women's biographies or infamous women's biographies in the, the late 14th century, he, he plays with this beyond their sex mm -hmm. model. 
In other words, that women who display virtue have indeed, as you suggest, become manly in some scary way. Mm-hmm. What happens certainly in, in um, biographical encyclopedias that come after him is a mad attempt to get rid of that kind of negative paradigm that the, the woman who does something uh, in terms of worldly accomplishment uh, in an active sense is inherently scary or has has uh, effaced her femininity in some way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, fathers who educated um, these uh, g- girls and then women. Um, mm-hmm. Who was the first of them? Do we know? Well, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> there, there could be uh, any number of starting points, but I think the one that makes the most sense is the one I start with, which is Christina Pizan's father. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, I made that choice because she is the first woman writer about whom we have any real secure knowledge. Um, and and her father was an astrologer and physician, Italian-born, Venetian, um, who was so good at all of his jobs that he attracted the attention of the French king. Mm-hmm. So uh, Thomas de Pizan moves uh, family uh, to the French court. And uh, it's precisely this kind of... Um, I know this is a dangerous way of putting it, but the sort of new men, mm-hmm. uh, the, the up-and-coming professional cast, mm-hmm. if you will, that that is kind of the, the seedbed of these forward-thinking fathers, mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. And why did I'm he? Dealing with. I was going to say, why? What do we know? Why he decided to educate his daughter? Well, as she tells us, and of course this is her version of the story, um, that this was a matter of intellectual and, and personal conviction for him. That he really he believed uh, that women are improved by education and not the other way around. They don't become manly or scary, that they become uh, more positive uh, contributors uh, to their families in, in every sense and more mm-hmm. virtuous mm-hmm. In, in all the good senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as she frames it, this was simply the decision he made. And, uh, and did he do the tutoring himself? She suggests that he did. Um, that's a little hazy. I would love it if she had given a point-by-point point, uh, <laughs> description of how that household academy worked. But what she seems to suggest is that much of her learning took place from conversations. Her husband was also a, a royal secretary uh, who would have been, I think, a part of this, this humanist movement, probably received a fairly extensive classical education and so forth. Um, so it's it's the conversation she describes between uh, father and husband that gave her a lot of uh, basic information. Um, but we also know that she could read Latin, so she wasn't just mm-hmm. absorbing things passively or, or mm-hmm. through the conversation of others. So my guess is there were probably tutors involved, or he literally tutored her uh, himself. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say so, but I expect so. Uh, perhaps this is a inappropriate analogy, but I know from another interview I did on this very show that American educators in the early 20th century um, were very worried about the impact of the rigors of serious learning on women, that they thought women would break their brains on these hard things. I don't know. It, I mean, it's pretty serious. I mean, they had, they had serious yeah. discussions about this, and they were worried that it would cause a decline in fertility. I mean, that, that these were physiological problems, not, not mm-hmm. that women wouldn't want to have kids, but that they couldn't have kids because they had, uh, I don't know, uh, learned trigonometry or something. Now, it sounds absurd to us, but they, they actually thought of it uh, quite quite seriously, and there was a sort of serious debate about about this. Do you find a similar sort of discourse in uh, the Renaissance about the almost physiological, I guess I would call it physiological, impact of higher learning on femininity? 
Well, they were certainly concerned uh, with the effects of learning on human beings in general. I mean, Erasmus famously in his Praise of Folly, in his characteristic, wonderful, satiric mode, talks gives this long list of the physical and emotional and uh, altogether mental um, anguish that study, especially the rigorous study of philosophy, can produce that, you know, you, you become pallid and weak. And he is, of course, making fun of this idea. Uh, but sure, there's a certain sense of... Um, uh, at least in the joking way, uh, the harm of learning on the, the physical self. As far as that played out with concerns about women's education, uh, the idea seems to be, well, one, there is a tradition of learned women outside of the context I'm talking about, and that is uh, also a classical inheritance, the learned courtesan. Mm -hmm. And the, the real danger in terms of the theoretical literature that, that I'm familiar with in the Renaissance is that maybe learning will produce a sexually promiscuous woman. Mm -hmm. I think they're less concerned about her fertility rates than the fact that she would maybe fall into this other model of the, mm -hmm. the transgressive woman. Um, and so there, uh, for learned women themselves and their supporters and promoters, uh, there is a great deal of effort made to try to say that this is absolutely not what's going on in the case of this woman mm -hmm. or in the case of this long roster of good women who are also educated. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, I was going to say, let's talk about de Besson a little bit. And, and what, what did she write exactly? Well, good God, what didn't she write? <laughs> she writes in almost every genre uh, of composition in the day. She writes royal biography. She writes her um, um, City of Women, which is really the first uh, collection of uh, women's biographies outside of, uh, of, outside of her model, Boccaccio. And she does a lot by way of revising uh, and, and putting in a much more positive light uh, what he says about women's achievement. Um, also, he was focused on pagan women, and she's uh, much more inclusive. Pagan women, Christian women, saints, um, they're all there, and, and lay women. She also writes poetry. I mean, her really her first commissions were, not surprisingly, in a courtly context, uh, poems. She's known first and foremost as a poet. Uh, she also writes treatises on government. Uh, she writes, uh, in a sense, philosophical uh, treatises. Uh, you name it. <laughs> it's all there. It sounds very accomplished to me. Uh, In, let, let me uh, – I'd be interested to know uh, who read these things and how they were distributed. Well, she was, I would say, a highly popular author uh, in the sense that she also controlled some of her own um, copying centers. I mean she's in the days before print. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of extant manuscripts – uh, for her is is pretty astonishing. I would say it's safe to say that certainly the French elite read her very carefully. Uh, the English were reading certainly, and this is another genre in which she writes the kind of uh, chivalric text. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of Caxton's, uh, the early English printer, one of his first texts is is one of her chivalric mm -hmm. texts. And um, so. This is a little bit difficult, always without you know clear numbers for uh, sales. But yeah. uh, you know, she, she, her texts are widely distributed throughout Europe. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, she controlled, as I say, some of her own uh, manuscripts copying centers, and 
and I think had a more direct role in her image making. Mm -hmm. um, there are beautiful illuminations, many of which portray her in her study, mm -hmm. uh, encountering the book and encountering the process of writing. Mm -hmm. So she fashioned an image for a European public, and I think there was a pretty substantial European public mm -hmm. there too to read her. I've worked a little bit with uh, manuscript distribution in, yeah. uh, in the Russian context, which is very different. Uh, but one thing I do know about it, and our listeners may not know or they may know about it, is that attribution can be sort of a problem because if mm. something is popular, other people will copy it. And this was mm -hmm. an era before, generally speaking, at least in the Russian context, people signed anything or were, you know, sort of had authorship. Um, so do we – uh, do we have a good grasp of exactly what is hers and what isn't hers? Are there a series of texts that are in dispute, or are there more to be found? That's a really great question, and I'm not sure I can answer it entirely clearly. I mean, she is certainly one um, to insert herself as author in her texts. In other words, mm -hmm. for example, in The City of Ladies, she begins in the voice of Christine, the author. Mm -hmm. And these women who sort of the, um, the visions that she received, these three celestial female figures that come to comfort her. She's become very depressed about what it is to be a woman because of her reading. Mm -hmm. And they come and visit her to comfort her. And they're constantly referring to her as dear Christine and mm -hmm. dear daughter and things like that. And she, she does this pretty uh, characteristically in a lot of her work. So certainly the figure of Christine is clear. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of maybe pirate manuscripts or other texts by her to be discovered, that's a really interesting possibility. I don't know, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that the corpus of writings that are attributed to her are securely attributed to mm -hmm. her. I see. No, it's an interesting question. I always find this, uh, this sort of detective work very uh, uh, curious and challenging, and I think many people don't know that uh, the texts that we have of, let's say, the 14th or 15th century, and of course earlier, are not actually, at least in the case of Russia, I know this to be the case, um, are not of the 15th and or 14th and 15th century. That they are, in fact, later copies, and uh, so it, it becomes difficult to, to uh, ascribe them to anybody uh, firmly. And, and another difficulty, again, is when um, when somebody starts to write a uh, a story or a tale of, of a certain kind. Uh, those will be copied and in roughly the style in which they are found. And in the case sure. that comes to mind is uh, the Dracula tales, which I actually studied a long time ago. And they, they are of um, they are of uh, German origin, actually, in a place that is now in Romania. But they travel all over Europe, and people copy them and insert different folks, like Ivan the Terrible, into them. So. Uh, we we can't really um, yeah so Ivan the Terrible becomes Dracula it's kind of curious and then Dracula becomes Dracula if you if you know what I mean like yeah. Bram Stoker's time uh, Dracula's just refigured and he's somebody different so it's these these tropes are, they kind of wander around and I was wondering if it's the case that uh, you find any of that sort of thing uh, in the in 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 her tradition is it is there a series of do, do we know anything about texts that are in her style and might not be her, or uh, were people copying her, or you see what I'm, see what I'm driving at here? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely see. Um, it's the best of my knowledge, and I, I'm not a manuscript specialist in her case. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there don't seem to be many questions about mm -hmm. author. I mean, certainly her texts were copied and duplicated, mm -hmm. but uh, 
and I, I don't think there's there's a tremendous amount of concern, certainly with her her most famous works, that there were interpolations or mm-hmm. transformations as we went on down, um, you know, past her own life into uh, later manuscripts and then into the world of print. Mm-hmm. That uh, that there were those kind of difficulties. In fact, I think it's very interesting um, that one of you know her early works on chivalry that Caxton prints is actually attributed to her. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know even in the days before. Uh, clear rules on plagiarism uh, mm-hmm. and things um, that Caxton would bother uh, mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that says something about her stature mm-hmm. as, a, as an authorial figure. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, but no, that's an interesting question. Well, I, you know, he would have reason. I was going to say, he would have reason to attribute to her if, she, if he thought it would improve sales. Uh, well, exactly. You know, I, the, the, so, you know, I, I always find these textological questions really interesting because um, we have a lot of texts that are received as by X, and I, I think that we really don't know that they're by X. Um, maybe that's just mm-hmm. my own prejudice. Maybe it has something to do with the Russian context where people just were um, what we would call mad plagiarists, but uh, they didn't have the idea of plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so, uh, so this all takes place within what you call the Household Academy. Right. Um, and then you, you mark a kind of breaking point at, at 1580, and right. transition to something called the household salon. How, how do they differ, and what is the origin of the household salon? Well, they differ in a couple of important respects. Uh, one is that in in the sort of first phase, and you know, the book covers sort of nineteen principal case studies with with other figures thrown in. Um, the basic pattern that I saw was until about uh, fifteen eighty, we see both fathers teaching daughters. And also women's use of uh, the father figure, both in a sense as Christine does, justifying her work by saying, my dad says it's okay, in essence, uh, for me to be educated, and he educated me himself, um, toward a much more expansive language of just the intellectual family. Around 1580, I mean, as I'm arguing at any rate, there is a pretty substantive collection of women intellectuals. So this requires, I think, less justification, less kind of invoking a father figure, whether literally one's father or a patron that you address as father, um, to situate yourself in some way as culturally normal, right? I'm not one of these scary Amazons. I'm not one of these transgressory women. I'm a good family woman in that sense. Around 1580, then, the more expansive language of the intellectual family and, and the more expansive setting of, as I'm calling it, the, the household salon, the shift there, as I see it, is uh, toward a more egalitarian kind of framework in which women begin to take an equal and sometimes even dominant role in in the kinds of activities in, in academic terms and in literary terms that were going on in these you know, household centers of smarties. Mm-hmm. So the household salon does a couple of things. One, I see more evidence after 1580 of the the woman writer as a mother and wife, and that these are emphasized aspects of her her life and also rhetorical tools that she employs. Mm-hmm. Um, before 1580, there's this odd sense in the the writings about women, and they were celebrated figures, positive celebrated celebrated figures that I'm looking at. There's a sense that we always refer to them in a daughterly mode, mm-hmm. even if they were married. Mm-hmm. Right? After 1580, less so. We, mm-hmm. We're kind of ready now for the the working wife and mother, at least in in intellectual terms. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that, and I see more collaborative marriages, both in Italy and in England in the 16th century, mm-hmm. in which you have learned husband, learned wife working together, mm-hmm. in some way collaborating on uh, not just literary. Uh, things, literary texts, but also in an artistic sense. Mm-hmm. I found a couple of artistic families that are very interesting. Mm-hmm. 
And then rhetorically, uh, as I say, women also now use the image of the mother as a positive marker for themselves. They're still kind of talking about themselves, again, in a domestic setting as culturally normal. That's part of their self-justification. But now this is in a more uh, more discourse of parody. I'm not just a, a daughter, a little daughter to be taught. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm now a wife to be reckoned with in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. So, it's uh, funny because I um, this didn't really occur to me, but I interviewed a fellow last week, Ben Binstock, who uh, wrote about Vermeer's family, Vermeer the Dutch painter. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yes, and uh, one of the things that he argues is that um, there are several things that we call Vermeer's that are actually by Vermeer's daughter. Because she is that was, right? yeah, no, that's right. He says, he yeah. says, I think he identifies four or five paintings, but he says, yes, these are these are by Maria Vermeer. They're not actually by the Vermeer we know. I don't even know Vermeer's first name. That's really shameful. But I think Jan. Jan. Okay, good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but he, he argues this that that they were uh, sort of um, that he was passing on the, the family secrets to her upstairs uh, while uh, everybody was whiling away their time downstairs. So maybe you could give us some examples of some of these women who ran or participated in household salons. Well, sure. <laughs> this could go on for some time. No, uh, one of my favorite cases uh, is the the household salon, as I'm calling it. And here, I should say, the notion of a salon. It, again, I'm using to suggest I'm I'm writing on the in, uh, interpretive coattails of Diana Robin here, who's who's got a great new book out on publishing women uh, salons, the presses, and the Counter Reformation in 16th century Italy, in which she she looks literally at 16th century women running salons in a kind of very much an Enlightenment mode before the Enlightenment. Um, so what I'm thinking of with the salon is, at the very least, participation of husband and wife, uh, kind of collection of cultural, um, if not elites, at least cultural aspirants in, in their, their context. So one of the reasons I love uh, this case that I'm going to talk about is, is that it shows that kind of development in a really interesting way. And this is the theatrical family of the Andreini. Uh, Isabella, the famous actress, and her husband Francesco, her son Giovanni Battista, and um, the way in which this plays out is that, I mean, Andreini is herself primarily an actress. I mean, they, the husband and wife, run a theatrical company that tours Europe, not just Italy. And she is also a humanist. Um, she is very keen to be perceived as a woman of intellect and has a long series of letters with um, Henry de Put or Puteanus in his Latinized name, in which she engages in this kind of high-level humanist um, letter writing and mutual celebration. So he's kind of a satellite of their family in some ways. And one of the greatest things about this family is not just the fact that both husband and wife are writers. They, she produces, um, sometimes to the 8th and 10th edition, uh, poetry, her letters, which of course are not just humdrum correspondence, but this kind of high-level epistolary exchange that I've been talking about, uh, and some of her scenarios for plays. So too, her husband Francesco publishes these things. And one of the the greatest things about this case is not only her flexibility in presenting herself in so many different ways, not just as a good wife and mother, but but as the kind of um, burning uh, scholar, scholar who is on fire for knowledge. This is certainly what we see in her letters with Deput, but also uh, as a kind of new matriarch. And her son um, really founds his career on the authority, not just of his father, who also publishes uh, his most famous speeches um, as, as the leading actor in this company, but, uh, you know, 
and the, the scenarios that he and his wife worked out. I'm getting too excited. You go right ahead. I don't think this is making any sense. No, but anyway, what sense. happens is that Giovanni Battista, who was one of really the early figures in the Commedia dell'arte, uh, found his, his authority as, as a cultured person, as a man of letters on the authority, not just of dad who does these things, but of mom. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, especially in his defense of the theater as a medium for education, as a, uh, as an, uh, a place for erudition, mm -hmm. uh, uses his mom as an example, mm -hmm. because in a sense, the theater and women are liable in the 16th and early 17th centuries to the same kind of critique, social mm -hmm. critique, um, that they're there's always the danger of licentiousness and sexual mm -hmm. amorality and all of this kind of thing. So he defends both the theater uh, and his own profession as an actor uh, on the basis of his mother, who is so famously virtuous and learned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. L let's talk a little bit about one of the threads that runs through the entire book, and that is your um, challenging proposition that there is a mm -hmm. kind of proto-feminism here, that mm -hmm. uh, we can use this word feminism, which is a quite, quite a modern word, uh, to apply to, to this much earlier context. Maybe you could lay that argument and understanding of feminism out to us. Sure. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I should say I resisted um, speaking in these terms. My primary interest was to understand, you know, where these women came from. As I began to read more and discover that there were literally hundreds of women writers and cultural contributors of different kinds in the European context during the Renaissance. But once you've started reading what they actually wrote, it becomes increasingly difficult not to talk about some form of feminism. I want to be very clear. I am not talking about feminism full-blown in its modern political sense, suddenly emerging. Nobody's, in, nobody's burning their bras. Actually, they weren't even no, wearing bras. Well, so. presumably not. I mean, again, you say like, the difficulty is once we get to the materiality of all of these things. Um, I don't know. Perhaps they did, but probably not. Um, what I mean is that uh, what I think we see in uh, in the writings of women from Christine de Pizan all the way to sort of my last case study, the English painter feminist Mary Moore in the late 17th century, is the development of a line of critique uh, that challenges uh, patriarchy as a system that certainly celebrates positive female contribution to culture and to the family, and that begins to imagine uh, a new space for the female voice, really thinking about women as a category. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of the women I discuss were, as I'm calling it, explicit feminists in this regard. Uh, that is, people who issue some kind of critique, and also begin to think in terms of equality, or speak in terms of equality and rights, as they certainly do by the, the late 16th and 17th centuries. There is a strand of explicit feminism, and mm -hmm. I discuss that. But I think there are two other ways in which we should think of these women writers as contributors to the genesis of feminism. Mm -hmm. In other words, enabling this as a, a kind of idea, if not um, a coherent political philosophy, mm -hmm. which it clearly wasn't in the early modern context. Mm -hmm. The other two ways are by celebration. In other words, even if they were not fiercely critical of the social or economic position of women, what they do is celebrate women who are doing different kinds of things, showing us something different about female capability, like writing in an, ex in, in an, in an intellectual or in a mm -hmm. scholarly way. Uh, 
there is a great deal of celebration, not just by women themselves, but uh, by male biographers. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of celebratory feminism, as I'm calling it, certainly helps to reimagine female capability. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I'm sorry to interrupt, but the only, the only uh, strain of uh, rights talk or equality talk that I was really familiar mm-hmm. with um, prior to reading your excellent book uh, stemmed from really religious conviction in the radical reformation. There, there were radical uh, sects, particularly in Germany, that, um, that did hold the sexes to be equal. Uh, some of them came to the United States and settled around Iowa City, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's yeah. a local connection yeah, everywhere. Yeah, there is, actually. Yeah, there is a local connection. Well, they did it after a couple hundred years later, but I, I know that uh, they um, that they did feel that the uh, sexes were equal and they opened schools to, to mm-hmm. young girls and this kind of thing. So this is a this is a different emanation of this same idea, and I was unfamiliar with it, so kudos to you for uh, uncovering it, or at least uncovering it for me. Um, I, I am interested in the transmission of these ideas, I, um, I'd i like to get from these later 16th century and 17th century um, feminists, let's call them that, people that engaged in equal rights talk, mm-hmm. uh, to someone like Wollstonecraft or even later uh, someone right. in the 19th century, someone like Mill. Um, were they... Were they remembered in the mid-18th century, or had they been forgotten? Is there any influence? Can we trace a trail from these people to The trail gets hazy. The trail does get hazy. Um, But certainly, I think in terms of line of argument, the connections are very clear. So, for instance, Wollstonecraft herself has a very hazy definition of what rights she's thinking about for women. When she talks in clearly political terms, she says so almost in the context of, I know this is going to prevent, uh, provoke laughter, but maybe women should have representatives in government. Mm-hmm. What her real line of argument is, is that for anything more egalitarian, more fair in the treatment of women, what you need is to give women educations, educations that are exactly the sort that men would receive. Mm-hmm. So, And that is the line of argument that really unites all kinds of early modern feminists and and a Wollstonecraft. Mm-hmm. This notion of the equality of the sexes, at least in matters of the mind. This is why I'm focused on women intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And even those, as I suggest, who are neither explicit nor celebratory feminists, mm-hmm. those who, as I'm calling them, participatory feminists, like a lot of English women translators, mm-hmm. the the figures who do the same work as men in intellectual terms really give weight to this argument that uh, that threads through uh, the very early modern, through through Wollstonecraft, that the key for any kind of reimagining of social relationships mm-hmm. between men and women is that they would have precisely the same education. So just to be absolutely clear, mm-hmm. uh, we, we don't, ha- in the 18th century, we don't really have any reference to these earlier writers, but we have a kind of evidence from the transmission of similar ideas? Is that Similar right? ideas? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's also someone like a George Ballard, who's also an 18th century collector of, of women's biographies. He's really the first to print uh, a biographical compendium like the ones that we see in Italy in the 16th century, in which he revives the memory of at least the English women, um, many of whom I discuss. Uh, uh, as, as cultural contributors, and it's quite a, an impressive scholarly tome. So it's not as if they've been entirely forgotten, mm-hmm. but, I mean, I can't say that Wollstonecraft cites them. She does mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting so moment here. So there are here. forgettings and erasures. Yeah, exactly. There's a very interesting moment here, and I don't think most people know this either, that uh, especially in the 19th century, the our understanding of, including the texts of the Renaissance, was sort of reinvented, that, that they started to be republished yes. and people started to pay attention to it in a way that they really mm-hmm. never had before. This is absolutely true in the Russian case where the Russians knew virtually nothing about their past before the 19th century, late 18th, 19th century, and and then um, some people who'd been trained by Germans actually go into the archives and mm-hmm. and they start to republish these things. And suddenly the Russians understand that they had a 16th, uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century and they start to pay a lot of attention to it. They had no idea. Uh, and, and I think a similar kind of things, it's more attenuated, happens in, in Western Europe as well, is that there's the rediscovery of these people for various reasons and the, our, our understanding of the Renaissance gets Built. But, but one of the things that, that sort of struck me is that as it was being built in the 19th century by antiquarians, the late 18th and 19th century, that really, if you look at the antiquarians themselves, as far as I know, women weren't really included. That, you know, we, we got... Um, Right. And of course, it depends on where you are. I mean, the 19th century is one of the, the great eras, certainly in the Italian context, for this kind of recovery. Um, the Italians recover their women, <laughs> their women contributors. Uh, but my impression is the, the English really don't, and the French really don't, and then the Russians mm-hmm. absolutely did not. Uh, and we, we, well, we don't know, but we suspect there were, um, mm-hmm. there were Russian women that wrote poetry in the, in the, in the 17th century, almost certainly, they, they were they were forgotten because the the sort of parade of people that uh, get taught in schools and universities in the 19th century, um, you know, all are are all male. I mean, they're they're Erasmus and Moore and and yes. and, and and these types, uh, it, with the exception, of course, of Elizabeth and a couple of others. Um, but they 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 they, you know, I want to speculate that they came across these people, these women, and they just decided that they really weren't. Worth mentioning, so we get a kind of we get, we get a misimpression, and I, I guess I want to lay that the guilt for this misimpression at their doorstep. <laughs> oh my, uh, you know, the, I think I would agree. Yeah, they they the, had that ghetto separate spheres idea, right? Yeah, they, they really did. And this was the same time, you know, this was the same time in which um, you know Americans were really worried about college women breaking their brains. So mm-hmm. they they were, um, you know, they they had a kind of vested interest in, in making sure that this um, knowledge didn't uh, didn't come back. Did, actually, wasn't revived in, in the later 19th and early 20th century. I, you know, I, I'm very, I'm very interested in the reception of the, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in the 19th century because these histories were really being written whole cloth, and they were being written with lots of grinding axes. I, I think. Well, yeah. sure. I mean, you know, this is one of the problems with Burkhardt, classically, Jacob yeah. Burkhardt and his yeah. treatment of the Renaissance. And of course, this is, as I should have said earlier, in part what Joan Kelly is responding to is the issue of periodization. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. He is inventing the idea of the Renaissance as yeah. part of her. Her critique of his rosy view of the dawn of modernity right. is is right. to say that well, women really, you know, right. are a part of this. Well, you know, and it, it kind of goes back to where we started in this interview, and that is, it's, it's sort of the reason that I, and I would suspect I'm not alone, I cannot name or could not name before I read your book any female uh, sort of intellectuals of of the of the 15th and 16th century because they they were written out in the 19th century um, mm-hmm. by people that didn't think they. Uh, were worth writing about for whatever reason. So, um, I, I, yeah, just, we'll blame the 19th century. We can blame the 19th good. century. I would like to be more specific about that. I can't. Um, in the Russian case, I can be quite specific about uh, who, who told what story and for what reason. But in this case, I can't. But I suspect there's a, an interesting article or two. You can have one of your graduate students write about the reception of these uh, women in the 19th century to see if they were, mm. you know, if people. I always like these these articles that show that like somebody came across something that we know they did because they signed an archival sheet and they should right. ignore it. 
<laughs> yeah, I know exactly. I yeah, ignore it. You know, it's, it's, it's right. always very juicy to see what they they picked and chose. So, um, Sarah, we've taken up a, a heck of a lot of your time, and I, I really appreciate it. Um, let me uh, conclude the interview by asking you our traditional final question, and that mm-hmm. is, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, my next project concerns uh, mostly Venetian middling sort families and the ways in which they participate in the humanist movement. Um, This is going to be mostly an archivally based uh, Mm -hmm. study. I found an amazing will by a fascinating physician of the late 16th century Mm -hmm. and the ways in which he interacts with humanism and conceives of himself as a kind of Persian king. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm working on on tracing a kind of micro history of this family and then Mm -hmm. more broadly the question of, you know, the vernacularization of humanism. Mm -hmm. And where is this archive exactly? It's the State Archive in Venice. Well, you can you can do worse than that. It will be a sacrifice, but I'm looking forward yeah, to right. pursuing yeah, it. Yeah, this is my crying face right here. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm very sad right now. My archives are in Moscow. Well, still, that's not bad. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, okay, except when they have heat, it's great. I mean, but yeah. they don't always yeah. have heat, you know, in the toilets. You wouldn't believe it. I, it's quite incredible. Uh, not to cast aspersions on the Russians, of course. Lovely people. So of anyway, uh, let me uh, say again to our listeners that we're talking to Sarah Ross about her book, The Birth of Feminism, Woman as Intellect in Renaissance Italy and England. Sarah, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. It's been a treat. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Ross about her new book, The Birth of Feminism, Woman as Intellect in Renaissance Italy and England. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>